Thanks for joining us today on the Harvest Podcast. Now here's today's message. We pray that it will bless your life as you listen. Well, thanks for being here. You know, we, um, we never take it for granted that you're here with us. And before he gets away, we want to say, it's so good to have Josh back with us today. Man. If you don't know, he's been out for four weeks now. Um, he had to have two back surgeries in that process. And, uh, and so we're rejoicing with him that he told me after the second surgery... It was the first time in 10 years that he hadn't had back pain. Now, he still had surgery pain, but not like that significant grinding, oh my goodness. If you've ever had it, you understand what I'm talking about. But we're glad you're here. Upright, yeah. We need him to get well fast, because we're used to him doing the heavy lifting, and the doctor said he can't. So <laughs> we need him to get, to get well. So keep praying for him, and he's got about, I don't know, six or eight more weeks of recovery in the process of uh, getting back to normal, so just continue to pray for him in that process that he doesn't do anything long-lasting, and, and if you have small kids, you get it. You know, his son just wants daddy to hold him, and he doesn't understand why daddy can't, and so, you know, it's, it's still a, a no-fun journey ahead for the next few weeks while he's working through that. Well, we're glad you're here on this Easter Sunday morning. This last week, um, we began our Easter season message series. Um, and we're calling it that on purpose because this is not something that's going to be um, like a short-lived three or four-week little, little sermon series. Um, but for this season, we really feel like this is where the Lord's taking us, and it's a series called Victorious. Now, if you felt like maybe in life that um, you were kind of on the, on the short end of the stick, like, like you, know, you were on the losing end of the battle more than you were on the winning end, then you're really going to enjoy this series of messages that we're we're pressing into, because we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that God didn't send his son to pay the price as a ransom for many for you and I to just let life happen to us. Too often we allow life to happen to us instead of us happening to our life. We let our day come and happen to us instead of getting up in the morning and say, I'm going to happen to my day. I'm going to make a difference in the world because of who's living inside of me. We were born for more than just getting along. We were born for victory. You were born to live a life that is victorious. And, and in coming weeks, we're going to press into, there's a passage of scripture where it basically talks about um, how, how we were made for victory. And that's, that's the point. And that term victory is not um, like a, a verb. It's actually a noun. In other words, that's who we are. We were made that way. That's the way we were designed is to live victorious. So we're going to do that. So if you're tired of the devil chasing you, we want to encourage you to stop letting the devil chase you and instead turn around and give him a go. I'm going to run that by one more time. If you're tired of the devil chasing you, then we're going to encourage you through this series to turn around and give the devil a go for his money instead. We're not, we're not, we're not going to just let it happen. We're going to really press into it. And so that's where we're headed in all of this. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be marked. We've been marked for victory. And what are the marks of victory? That's what we're talking about today. In every battle, there are going to be marks that we're left with. Uh, we, we refer to them as war wounds or battle scars, right? Now, how many of you have some kind of a battle scar from like when you were a kid and you did something stupid with one of your siblings? Anybody? Yep, I, I have them. I have a scar down here. Um, I'm not right in the head from the head injury I suffered. 
When I was seven years old, I thought I would be Evil Knievel um, on my bicycle. And so I took off. We lived in Colgate, and they had buried a new water line. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I'm going to do just like I watched Evil Knievel do on a motorcycle, and I'm going to use that as a ramp and jump it. See, you're laughing like you already know. So here I go, I get out there and I take off riding down the road and I'm going and I've got a couple of my buddies from town there and they're watching and I think they just came to point and laugh because that's kind of what they did. But I'm riding along and I hit that thing and it was soft dirt. And my front tire got over it and my back tire got stuck in it and I went over the handlebars face first into the street. So my mom, working at the hospital after my dad figured out what had happened to me when I limped home, decided, let's go see the doctor. So literally, we pull up at the doctor's house, and he checks me out and says, ah, he'll be fine. He's hard-headed enough. He's Junior's boy. As my dad and sent me on home and said, I'd be fine. Well, the next day, my eye is all swollen shut. My face is all scarred up. My elbows are just skin plumb down. Like, oh, the bone is showing through is what I felt like. It was rough, and I still have those scars. They're left on me. They're reminders that I have been through that. Scars are, are proof that we survived the incident. They're not an open wound that's supposed to still cause us problems. Scars remind us that we survived it. I have a seven-inch scar on my shoulder from where, um, you know, in playing soccer with my nine-year-old son and his nine-year-old buddies, I had to prove that I still had it. I got the ball, but I broke my collarbone in the process and had to have surgery and several screws in a plate or a rod later, I'm, you know, still kind of trying to figure this thing out, right? But I have a scar. It didn't kill me. Scars are proof that we made it. Something that could have taken us out potentially didn't have that effect. It didn't have the ability to win over us. So every victorious army has a certain amount of marks that got them to where they are. These reminders show us where we're going to get to. Everyone has those moments. And today as we celebrate Easter, the day that Jesus came out of the grave, the, the day that he kicked the devil in the teeth, stole the keys to death, hell, and the grave at the same time and came out of it, we're going to look back at some of the marks of victory that Jesus showed us and left us as a pattern to follow. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 20. We're going to look here. At, uh, at a passage, it'll be on the screens for you to follow along, but I know some of you like to read it along in your Bible, and that's just great. I'll give you a moment to turn there. As we get started into this, I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. I just find it's easier to, um, to track along with. Beginning in verse 19, it says, That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. From this passage of Scripture today, I'd like for us to look at four of the marks of victory that Jesus showed and gave us by way of this passage. So point number one is the mark of peace. The mark of peace. Again, verse 19 says, that Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. So let me set the stage in this context for you in this passage. 
They had heard that morning that Jesus had risen from the grave, that the grave that they had seen him laid in, that they had been to and seen that the guards were outside of it, seen that the tomb, uh, the stone had been rolled over, covering the tomb, the entrance to the tomb. They had heard that he had been uh, somehow resurrected out of that. They had heard the story uh, from Mary Magdalene and, and some of the other women that had gone to prepare his body for burial because they were not able to get it done before Passover according to Jewish custom. So they went the day after, which would have been today, Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, now we typically look at Sunday as the last day of the weekend, um, but according to custom, this would have been the first day of the week. The week starts on Sunday, ends on Saturday. The first day of the week was about to change everything. They had heard Jesus is alive. They'd heard he'd come out of the tomb. And Peter, over in Luke, um, uh, Luke's passage in his recounting of this story, says that Peter ran. Peter and John, they, they ran to see the tomb for themselves. Now, Peter outran them all. I don't know if it's because he couldn't believe it, if he was afraid if I don't get there to see for myself. I'm not sure what his reasoning was, but he turned into a speed demon and got there. He, um, he ran kind of like Lula drives. Lula outran the, uh, her guardian angels this week, and I'll leave that story for another time. I could have said Gary King just the same. We all know that's the truth as well, if you know Gary at all. But Peter was a man on a mission, and he ran as fast as he could to get there to see for himself were it true. Here it was now, this storytelling, it's evening. And just as darkness is gripping the earth, so fear is gripping the disciples. It says that they're hiding behind closed doors. But this is the first day of the week. They've made it through the Passover. They've heard the stories that Jesus is alive. And this, the first day of the week that they're so gripped in fear, would become the day that would be, be, be the constant celebration day in and day out for the disciples from this point forward of how Jesus changed everything. You see, just a week earlier, last week, one week ago today, they had been celebrated with Jesus as they made their way in, as they accompanied their Lord and Savior, and, and the man that they just knew would be the Christ who would set up his throne, set up his kingdom on the earth, as they accompanied him into the city. But now they find themselves in an entirely different predicament. They are hunted, they are wanted, they are marked men because, as we see in verse 19, they're, they're hiding behind closed doors because they were afraid. They were afraid with good reason of the Jewish leaders. At this point in time, fear was a very valid response for these guys. Very valid. Stop and think about it. Uh, they, they had plenty to be afraid of. Number one, the Jewish leaders. They saw how these guys had hunted down Jesus in the first place, right? How they came at night. How they came with, with weapons. How they came with torches and how they came with a mob. They came as a group to take them. So they knew that they could get a posse together uh, kind of like an old Western movie, and decide they were going to take vigilante justice. They, they knew that they were capable of this because they had seen it time and time again. It would have been normal for them as wanted men to know that their Jewish leaders were going to stamp out this rebellion that had risen against their leadership of the Jewish community, and that would mean that these men and women would pay the price. They would want to make sure it went away. And as if that weren't enough, all of a sudden, uh, in spite of the religious leaders, now it appears, according to this verse, that a ghost has walked in. All of a sudden, someone has appeared in the room with the form of Jesus, but they're not buying it yet. 
And if the fear of the religious leaders wasn't enough, being good Jewish boys, they knew what a theophany was. They knew that this was a representation of God or of Christ uh, coming to them in the flesh. A theophany is when deity appears to mortal people in, in, in our fleshly appearances and it takes on that same appearance. This would have been the very first recorded Christophany or Christ appearing in that same fashion, but it carried many of the same traits because one of the, there, there are three traits of a, a, the, a theophany. The basic elements are the same. Number one is fear. Number two is a calming word of peace or don't be afraid that the, the deity gives coming from God or from Christ. And the third one is a word of commission for the task to be performed. The fear that would have been invoked by this theophany was already present. They didn't need to be scared further. They were already scared for their lives. And according to Jewish tradition, if a theophany appeared, if you were experiencing one of these, the Jewish belief was if you saw God, you were going to die. No one can see the Lord and live. And so here they're looking and they see him and immediately that would have been something that would have rushed to their minds. And yet, to have God speak peace, to have Jesus say, peace, my brothers, peace, and to reach out and to place his hand on their shoulder would have been overwhelming because it meant that he didn't come with judgment, but rather with a special task for you. And it was announced with the words, peace be with you. He announced, I've got something special. I'm here. I'm here, peace. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been in, the, in a church building at night, alone. And heard just how scary these facilities can be. Yes, sir. I've heard your stories. I'm with you. I've had many of those moments, right? As a preacher's kid growing up, I've told a few of those where, you know, I'd walked in and I was working, it was before computers, everybody had one at home and we had one at the church and I would go up there to type those horrific papers that you had to type and submit for, for high school. And I was up there one night and I was alone. I had unlocked the glass doors to go in. I had turned on the foyer light there in my dad's little church in Clinton and I had turned on the hall light and the office light. In other words, I turned on every light I possibly needed to get where I was going. I go in, I'm sitting there working, I'm typing this paper, and it's about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, from the other end of the building at the fellowship hall, which, you know, come on, it's about 100 steps, okay? I'm going to put this in perspective. So it's not like you misheard, right? All of a sudden, from the other end of the building, you hear the loud clap of the metal door slam shut. And I know you have to slam it shut because me and my brother and some of the other um, rough, roughhousing boys had broken the door frame plenty of times, and if you didn't slam it, it wasn't going to shut. So I, here I am typing, you know, whatever you know, um, Shakespeare had to say about this. You know, and you start to shake, right? And you're, all of a sudden, you get worked up, and it's like, oh, my goodness, what in the world? You know, so, so you know, being the, you know, 16-year-old young, strong, strapping young man that I thought I was, I come out of there, hello? So I make my way down the hall, doing what everyone would do, right? 
You get to this doorway and you reach in and you flip the light on. As soon as I could find a flashlight, I thought I was a policeman holding it like this, right? Creaking around the corners, you know, you, you got to make sure that everything's okay. And so you just kind of keep going and all of it, you know, and everywhere you go. Then I find the Royal Ranger Room, which is kind of like um, Boy Scouts except for churches. And so I, I find the Royal Ranger Room and what do I find? I find a hatchet. I pick up said hatchet. If nothing else, I can fling it at them and run. Hopefully I can get away before they catch me, right? It's kind of like I was told in high school one time that if the police come running, I don't have to be the fastest person there. I just have to be faster than you. So here I am, I'm making my way down, and there is no one in the building. I have looked in every corner of every room. I have looked under the, the, the cribs in the nursery. I have looked behind every corner, behind every chair, under every table. I have looked in the refrigerator just in case. I have even gone and looked in the baptistry because you never know. They could have jumped in there and hidden. I've looked everywhere. Now imagine that you have all these grown men, however many were there. The Bible says that the disciples were there, but who knows how many it was. Multiple people, not just the 12 or the, the 10 at this juncture, not just the 10, who knows how many were there. Who knows? And they all have this moment, all of a sudden. Oh, Jesus. Is it really you? And they're terrified, and he says, peace. Peace. That's a calming voice. Peace be with you. Thank God you didn't come to kill us. Peace. Peace be with you. I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. You see, today I don't know what many of you might be facing. I don't know where your situation is at. Uh, maybe you're in one of these moments that, that you've, you, you're in, uh, dealing with the suffering of a, of a failed marriage or the loss of a loved one, a failed job performance, betrayal by a loved one, the feeling that God has let you down and failed you because he didn't do what you thought or, or demanded or expected that he should have done as though he uh, somehow was going to allow us to determine what it was that he was supposed to do like he's our own personal genie in a bottle awaiting our commands. And if we rub that bottle just right, out he'll come and say, here, what can I do for you? Here's your three wishes because that sometimes we think that's the way that it works but that's not at all the way that God works but yet that's our mindset as Americans it's like hey if I do all this right then God's going to give me everything I've ever wanted and hoped and dreamed even though I don't ever live for him day in and day out but that's a different sermon for a different day any one of these things would be legitimate reasons for fear the fear of the unknown, the fear of the future. And guess what? It's the same fear that the disciples felt, that fear of the unknown, that de the, the death of a dream, that you've given your life for something that seems to have failed and it's never going to come back and it's never going to work. And sometimes the fear that God is nowhere to be found while we're in the middle of it can be overwhelming. And it's the same debilitating fear that drives us behind locked doors with only those that we can commiserate with. Isn't it amazing how in these moments like this, we find one of two people in life. We either find those who will lift us up and make us better through it, or we find those who will stay right where we're at and help us experience the same level of sorrow and, and, and sulking. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's Jesus in the middle of our situation. I don't know about you, but we're not sure if we should be glad and thrilled that he's actually still alive and with us or if we should be terrified 
that this is a horrible sign that the fear I've been living with is now going to be confirmed and it's going to kill me and God's here to help that process go faster. See, when Jesus shows up in our lives today, And in every New Testament account of a Christophany, whether it was Paul on the Damascus Road or whether it was John the Revelator in the book of Revelation, every single time it was never calamity that he announced. Instead, it was peace. Peace. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm with you. You don't have to worry about it. I'm in this with you. And peace, when he speaks peace, it's the most reassuring thing he could say. That reassuring voice that they've known time and time again. It was the most reassuring thing he could give them and the greatest mark of his victory over death that he could have given the disciples at that time. I'm sure their minds were flooded back to the memories as they they thought back to the time on the boat when here they are all of a sudden scared to death that the waves and the winds are going to overwhelm them and they go wake Jesus from the boat and they say, Lord, do you not care that we're going to die? Don't you care we're in the middle of this? And he stands up and says, oh, ye of little faith and speaks to the winds and the waves peace be still guess what he's still in the speaking peace business you know he's out of the grave and he's in our heart and he sent the holy spirit as our comforter to be the exact same representation in each of our lives of who he was in the disciples life and he still speaks peace He's still in the business of speaking peace. That's what the risen Lord does when he shows up on the scene. He shows up and says, I'm there. Why did you doubt me? Why did you have so little faith? I've been with you the whole time, baby. I'm here. I'm in the middle of this with you. I'm sure they were even reminded of his words in John 14 when he said, not to let your hearts be troubled for where he is there we will be also. The same thing happens in our lives. Jesus shows up seemingly out of nowhere, and in the middle of it, he speaks peace to us. And in an instant, in a moment, we're free from that fear that has held us because he is here. He's here. He's there, right where you're at, right in the middle of your sorrow, right in the middle of the pain, right in the middle of everything. He is there once again, and he's still the same God who rescues, who redeems, and who restores us with hope, all because he showed up and said, peace, shalom, peace, my peace I give you, peace, I'm here, peace, I'm still alive, peace, No matter what you're facing, I'm there with you. Peace, I'm on your side and I still have the power. He still got it. He didn't give it up. He didn't lose it. He didn't trade it in. It's not for sale. It can't be bought and it can't be sold because he still got it. He says, peace, you are not alone. I have everything that you need. Peace, my brothers. Peace, sisters. I'm with you. I'm with you. I know what some of you may be thinking. Words are good. Actions speak louder. I'm sure Jesus heard exactly those thoughts as he carried on into verse 20 when we moved to point two where it's the mark of Prince. Not like Prince the singer. Prince, like a fingerprint, an impression. The beginning of verse 20 says, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. Now, if this isn't battle scar enough to prove that he is all that and a bag of chips, I don't know what is. If this isn't evidence enough that he has done everything he said he could do, I I don't know what could be. 
There is no greater sign than this, than for a man you saw take uh, uh, nails in his wrists and nails in his feet and a spear in his side to be able to walk up to you and say, peace, my brothers, check it out. He was playing show and tell. Look, look, look at here what I got for you today. He, he showed them they could feel it. I don't know how this happened, and the, and the writers of the gospel certainly didn't try to explain it, how the very physical, evident God and, and the Lord Jesus Christ could appear in that room without opening a locked door and in the middle of where they were at without them seeing, I don't have a clue how that could have happened. All I know is they were able to feel the wounds in his hands, able to feel the scar in his side. Jesus didn't talk a good game during his earthly ministry. Instead, he backed it up with the ultimate action of being able to say, I told you guys in three days. I told you in three days it was going to change. I told you I was the Christ. I told you. Peter, you're the one that said it. You're the one who said that I'm the Christ, and I said that God had to have revealed this to you. It didn't come by flesh and blood, but had to come from the Spirit of God. I told you that this was the case. You knew this is what I was talking about, and here we are, and you still need more proof here. He will give us whatever evidence we need to reassure us that he is still God. And in the middle of your situation, he will speak peace. He will show you the signs that we need. This is the same sign that we have to bear in our own lives. We've got to do like Jesus did and not just talk a good game, but show a good game as well by backing it up with actions. Don't just talk about being a Christian. Be one. Don't just talk about having faith. Demonstrate it. Uh, don't, don't, don't just talk about putting God first. Actually do it. Don't just talk about forgiving those who have wronged you. Forgive. Forgive them. D don't just talk about those who have wronged you, but forgive them. I think I need to say it one more time. Don't just talk about forgiveness and, and forgiving those who have wronged you, Forgive them. One of the greatest strongholds in Christian lives today is that bitter root of unforgiveness. That stronghold holds us back from being able to receive all that God has for us. That stronghold keeps us from pressing into all that God wants to do in and through our lives because we just can't get past how that could have happened and how they could have done that, and I will never forgive them. I will get even before I ever let God deal with it. When God said, let Vengeance be his. Take them off your hook and put them on God's hook to get even. He knows how to do it better than we do. Let's let the same mark of, of those prints be on us as well so that we will be able to move into that mark of pleasure like the rest of verse 20 says. When it says in uh, the, the second portion says, they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Now, I've played sports my whole life. Still, I, I just told you, I'm a competitive person. And I'm going to say something that some of you are not going to agree with and you're going to think I'm a bad parent and that's fine. Don't send me an email. But for me as a competitor, winning is fun. We all tell our kids the same thing. It's not about winning and losing. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to play the game, play to win, right? You guys are some evil, mean competitors. Wow. 
I don't believe in I don't believe in this, you know, everybody gets a trophy thing. If your kid won the whole thing, they should get a ginormous trophy. And if your team didn't win, then I'm sorry, but you try better next time, okay? <laughs> I, I'm so, I'm one of those guys. Forgive me now, and if you don't like it, well, I, I apologize, okay? The Bible says you have to forgive me. I've asked. There you go. <laughs> of all the teams I've played on in my life. The one that was the hardest to deal with was my sophomore year in football. Because you see, my sophomore year in football, we made it all the way to the state championship game. As a sophomore in football, I started, I played left tackle. I weighed in at a whopping 226. Lord, I wish I weighed that now. At 226, I was the second largest person on our team. The other guy, he weighed 475. Guess who always got paired up? Hey, Trav, you got big Jess. Of course I do. Jesse, take it easy on him. Thank you. We were the only two guys that weighed over 200 pounds. On the offensive line, I was left tackle. Next to me um, was Chad Balmort. He weighed 189 pounds. Our center was Greg Kelly. He weighed 160. Our right guard was Miguel Gonzalez. He weighed 157 pounds. And our right tackle was um, uh, Kevin Naranjo, and he weighed 165. We beat you to the corner. Well, when we got to the state championship game, we played a team that could get to that corner just as fast as we could. And their whole offensive line weighed more than me. They were some big, fast boys. And we got beat. We lost the game 14-7 to in the state championship. Now, if you're one of those that says that it's not about winning and losing, <laughs> let me just tell you, that game was no fun. Were there fun moments in it? Sure. Like when you catch that guy not looking and you feel like you're going to knock his head off and he goes flying across and you're like, yes, and that's on film. You know what I'm saying? If you're a football person, you get it, right? It's one of those that every football player lives for. My coach called it a slobber knocker. I don't know where that term came from. I don't understand it. I just hope that I didn't get his slobber all over me, right? You did it. Well, listen, losing isn't any fun. Yes, teach your kids to have, you know, good sportsmanship. I shook every one of those guys' hands afterwards. Even the guy who pancaked me, I didn't like him one bit. But I shook his hand, and I told him, good game. <laughs> then I went and got with the rest of my team, and you know what I did? I cried like a little baby. Why? Because winning is fun. Losing is not. That same competitiveness has carried on in my life into everything, even if I'm playing soccer with my 10-year-old son now. If we're on the golf course, I don't care if he's 10 and hasn't developed a good golf swing, I still have to win. If we're playing cards and I can cheat just a little bit to beat you in cards, I'm going to cheat just a little bit to beat you in cards. I like to win. Winning is fun. Losing for me is not. Here the disciples were. They're in this room. 
All of a sudden, Jesus has appeared. Listen, they have spent three days wondering what in the world have we given three years to. We have, we have wasted everything. There is no way this is going to come back to us. There is no way this is going to make any sense on the other side of it. There is no way that I'm going to see what God wants me to see on the other side of this because I'm going to die tonight. Surely these Jewish leaders are going to get me. Not only that, now i got a ghost in the room. I'm about to wet my pants. I don't know what's going on with me. Who knows what's going to be on the other side of this? And yet... Jesus has spoken peace. He's showed them, hey, guess what? You're not on the losing team like you thought, but instead you're seeing a glimpse of what's yet to come and you're going to be overwhelmed with joy. So they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord because they realized I'm not a loser on a losing team. I'm a winner on a winning team. The one who I serve has kicked the devil in the teeth. He has won. He has conquered the grave. He won over death, hell, and the grave. He's a winner. I'm a winner. You're a winner. We get the pleasure of being on his team, amen? Losing no fun. The reason we love, we're filled with joy when they saw the Lord is because all of a sudden it made sense. All of a sudden everything came together. All of a sudden. You see, serving Jesus isn't something that's supposed to be dull or dreary. It's something that's supposed to be full of joy and happiness. It's a thrilling ride to be on the journey with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, my mama used to say to me that when I was down or if I was sad, my mom used to say this, son, what's got you in the mully grubs? And I'd say, I don't know, mama, what's a mully grub? I don't know what it is, but it wasn't someplace nice or someplace you were supposed to be. It was someplace to get out of. Serving Jesus isn't something that should have us down in the mully grubs. If, if we're always down and depressed, then perhaps we need to reevaluate whose team we're fighting for. Even, in my situ even if my situation looks like I'm not winning, I have to remember that at the end of the day, I've already won. I, I maybe seem like I'm losing this battle but the victory has already been secured because Jesus came out of the grave, because Jesus rose, because he proved to be victorious. We all will be victorious. We all will stand one day with him and say, great is he, the king of kings. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One day we will all stand before him and worship him as the risen Savior. We have the joy of seeing him. We have the joy of being marked with the pleasure of serving our Savior. But now we come to the final point. I know some of you were thinking, hey, that was three, he's almost done. Not so fast. We have to have the mark of power. If we're going to have the mark of victory, if we're going to be marked for victory, we have to have the mark of power in our lives. And in verse 21 and on, it says, again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now this would be where it would be easy for your sermon to get off track, but not today. <clears throat> so let me answer a couple of questions really quickly. First of all, I th maybe you're thinking, I thought the Holy Spirit wasn't given until Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Well, understand that in John's writing here, he's not really writing in a sequential timeline narrative. He's writing about the beginning from the same vantage point that you and I have, knowing the end. 
He already sees that that's going to happen. He's writing after the fact. It's kind of like if you were to write your own memoir. You know how that terrible story worked in your life and how you overcame it. You're not writing about it in the midst of it. You're writing from the backside of it. So he references the giving of the Holy Spirit not just once, but several times here in the book of John. There's several times that he references the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Many theologians believe that what this verse means in the Greek is a special empowerment for a task yet to come. I'm going to empower you to do something, but not yet. One day, I'm going to empower you with a bazillion dollars to do what I want you to do, but not today. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, and in 50 days, it's going to come fully. When someone writes you a check and you take it to the bank, what do you have to do? If it's a large check, they hold it and they say, wait, we have to wait for the funds to come in before we'll let you have any of it. We want to make sure this is going to work. Same thing. I'm giving this to you, but you're going to have to wait for it to actually arrive. Well, what about when he says that I get to forgive people's sins or not? Now, some of us, let's be honest, we would like that idea, right? Because that would get us right where we want to be. And if you have much of a Catholic upbringing, you absolutely recognize this because the Catholic Church has made this a huge part of their theology that the priest is the only one who can forgive and absolve your sins. And and it's where the, the rise of penance has come that we're supposed to work out our salvation. We're supposed to do something in order to receive forgiveness. That's not what this is saying. Again, theologians widely agree that the purpose of this is on the importance of pointing out that forgiveness is available for sins and doing so correctly, that we have to do so correctly or people won't receive it. Gio um, Borchet said in his New American Commentary, he said this, and it's brilliant. Now the concept of forgiveness and retention of sins must be understood in the context of rabbinic legal thought as the obligation to communicate correctly the requirements of the law so that those who are obedient to God's will would be accepted and those who are disobedient would be judged. The obligation on the part of the rabbis was very weighty because the people's well-being was clearly at stake. Thus, one could say that Jesus' followers, you and I, are to make the gospel so clear that it is evident where people stand on the nature of sin. When these texts are understood in this perspective, it should become clear that Jesus' commission to his followers is not one of privileged judgment, but of weighty responsibility to represent the will of God in Christ with extreme faithfulness and to be honest and authentic about their evaluations of judgment. In other words, it's our job to make sure people know about sin. It's our job to make sure they know that there is a separation that sin brings in our lives and what those are. We bear that responsibility, not just preachers, priests, rabbis. We as Christ's followers are to know that and to be able to announce that. So Jesus walks in and he announces their mission, that you're going to be sent. I'm sending you in the same way. The same beginning of his arrival, he starts it the same way, peace. Guys, listen, I'm going to tell you to do something and I want you to know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to give you my peace. Not a piece of my mind or a piece of steel, but peace of heart. Peace that says I'm not done with you. Peace that says it's not over. Peace that says I have an assignment for you. Not just peace because I have an assignment, but peace because I'm going to empower you to do it. Could you imagine if your employer came to you and said, hey, listen, I want you to go and build a house. 
and I want you to build not just a small house, but a huge mansion. Oh, and by the way, I'm not giving you anything to do it. No money, no tools, no supplies. Well, it'd be an impossible task, right? That's not what Jesus did. He said, guys, I have a task for you. I'm sending you. First of all, I'm giving you my peace. I'm sending you. Secondly, I'm giving you my power. I'm going to empower you to accomplish it because this very same power that just brought me out of the grave today in 50 days is going to be yours too. In 50 days, you're going to experience that overwhelming, empowering uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit. He breathes over us and empowers us with his supernatural ability to be his emissaries, his ambassadors, his representatives in the world today. He empowers us with this special ability. It's an empowering that that's not like the old... You know, in those old commercials when we were kids, my baloney has a first name, O-S-C-A-R. My baloney has a second name, right, Oscar Mayer. Well, our empowerment has a first name, and it's holy, and it has a second name, and it's spirit. And he empowers us not with just some mystical thing, but it's dunamis. It's that dynamic, explosive ability to do what we couldn't do. He shows us that I'm giving you this empowerment. This is exactly what God does and what he gave us through life, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Power to accomplish the task, power to be at peace, power to enjoy the journey, power to enjoy the prince, the impressions, the mark that he gives us. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you're here today and you would say, Pastor, you know what? It's Easter. And you know what on Easter? I'm supposed to be in church, but I don't really know Jesus. I don't know him. Never really met him. Maybe I've thought because if I was good enough, be a good enough person that that would be enough to get me by. But today I want to accept that he's marked me for my future, that he's given me a mark of victory. And it's the same mark that he has. And today I want to accept his saving grace. Today I want to enjoy the mark of of peace, the mark of prince, the mark of pleasure, the mark of power. I want that in my heart and in my life. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, you want to accept Jesus maybe for the very first time or maybe you need to recommit your life to him, would you slip up a hand? It's just me looking. All right, I see that. Okay. Who else? I'm looking over here to my left, your right, and I'm panning across the audience. What about here in the center section? Anybody? Okay. I see you right over here in the right. Anybody else? Moving on to the right, I see you. What about in the balcony? Anybody? Okay. You can put your hands down. In just a moment, we're going to ask those of you who need prayer to come. Our, our elders and prayer team are going to make their way. And if you raised your hand and said, I want to accept Jesus... We want to pray with you. We want to agree with you. We are on your side. We want to celebrate that you have made this decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. We want to celebrate that with you. Next week, we're going to offer you the chance to be water baptized. We're doing that. We can get you signed up and get you dunked as as a public testimony of your faith in Jesus. But we've got to start now with the response. So if everyone would, we're going to make it easy on those who are going to get out and come forward to pray. We're going to make it easy on them. So all across the room, if you would stand right where you're at. 
As you're standing, prayer team, elders, if you would, please come. Take your place here around the altars. And if you raised your hand because you want to accept the Lord or you want to recommit your life, we want to pray with you. We want to ask you to get out of your seat and make your way. And if you need prayer for anything, for any reason, you've got a doctor's appointment this week and you want somebody to agree with you for a good report from the doctor, we want to agree with you for that. So if you need prayer for anything, you're looking for work, you're looking for, uh, for whatever, anything, we want to agree with you. If you raised your hand, come on, I want to ask you to get out. I want to ask you to be brave. Take a step out of your seat and say, I'm ready to commit my life to Jesus. There were hands that went up all over the room. Would you please be brave and step out as they sing?